If I can take a liberty to say hello, um, I, I haven't been able to stand up yet this, this evening, but I'm Ed Eubanks, and thank you to Desert Springs folks, all of you showing us such hospitality. I, I see about half and half, and I'm really excited about that. This is my fifth Monday Thursday in a row of doing a joint service with the sister church. It just happens to be my first one in Tucson. And so, Lord willing, my personal opinion is, may it forever continue. Um, we, um, we have as our sermon text tonight, Luke chapter 22. Um, so if you have a Bible, uh, then uh, I'd invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. We're going to read from verses 21 to 38. That does not, by the way, fit into the breaks that our Bible editors have so helpfully given us. So you'll have to look for verse 21 if you're not... Uh, you're not already there. Um, this is one of the more difficult passages sometimes, or some of these passages that we're going to read tonight are some of the more difficult ones. Uh, but they draw together in a, in a unique cohesion to, to give us great encouragement. So as we open God's Word together, would you pray with me for its reading and teaching? Let's pray together. Lord, we, we come together tonight as... Many from different places and from different traditions and even from different congregations. We're thankful for this time to come together and we also are thankful um, that we are here um, in the presence of your people and your Holy Spirit's uh, presence. Would you encourage us with that? Lord, for those among us who are downcast or struggling, doubting uh, or fearful, uh, for those among us who are uh, fi- finding themselves in unbelief and in um, in a crisis of faith, would you lift us up? Um, for those among us, Lord, who are uh, resting strongly in you and growing in our faith, would you continue to encourage us now? And Lord, as we open your word, would you um, give us the uh, eyes to see, uh, open our eyes, um, and uh, unstop our ears that we might have ears to hear? Uh, Lord, give us um, minds that are transformed and renewed by your word that we might understand and souls that uh, believe and help us in our unbelief that what we hear and read and taught to us now, we would not presume to be merely the words of men nor uh, that of of an ancient book that has no relevance to us any longer, but that we would believe and rest in the truth that this is the very Word of God speaking to us. It is for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us that faith. We, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look together to Luke chapter 22, verses 21 to 38. This is God's Word for His people. But behold, the hand of Him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which one of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them because are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather... Let the greatest among you become the, as the youngest, and the leader 
as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to us in his love. Uh, One of my... Professors, um, in fact, one of the Hebrew professors at Covenant Seminary, where I attended, um, grew up Jewish, and uh, so he was always rich with jokes about uh, about his Jewish um, companions from growing up, and and uh, and had a great sense of humor about his own uh, Jewishness. Nothing off color, of course, but uh, but he he loved to tell uh, stories that were sort of thick with this uh, this Jewish tradition, and he told this one story of. Uh, of a young rabbi who came into a new uh, a new congregation, and um, and the and the rabbi uh, was caught in this in this struggle. He, he it seemed that he couldn't quite get his finger on what was the normal practice, and so he went to his predecessor, the old emeritus rabbi. I guess I guess they are emeritus rabbis in uh, in the Jewish church, whatever they call the retired rabbi. Uh, and he went to him and he says. He says, uh, Rabbi, tell me, uh, which, is the, which is the tradition? Um, the one congregation, side of the congregation wants to stand when we say the Shema. You know, the Shema is the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. one. One side of the congregation wants to stand, and the other side insists that our tradition is to sit. One side says the tradition is to stand, and the other side says the tradition is to sit. Now, which is the tradition? And the rabbi says this. This is the tradition. <laughs> <laughs> there's always this kind of uh, ongoing dispute among the people, isn't there? Whether it's, uh, whether it's the people of God or whether it's other people. And so it was, of course, in, in this moment when we encounter the disciples whose dispute among them was, who is the greatest? Or before that, they were arguing about, who will it be that will betray him? Uh, and then after that, they were arguing about, um, who will stand with him, right? And, uh, and it just seems like this text is full of this tension of dispute, of not knowing who will go and who will, who will do what. There's this ongoing debate, and, um, and it seems like they're, they're forgetting something, doesn't it? It seems like they're totally missing the, the momentous occasion that they're a part of, 
we look at this passage and think, man, if I were there, how much would I be drinking in the richness of that? And yet it seems like, well, maybe there was not so much of that really relishing the moment going on. Although, obviously, there was enough that they were aware of the text and, uh, and, and wrote it down later, right? But we, we forget, just like they do, what, um, what to hope in, what to look to, what to find our, our comfort and our identity and our, our strength in. Um, we, we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? And yet, often we act as if our hope is built on something else entirely, uh, on, on a tradition or on the, the outcome of an argument or on our opinions or on those of others. Well, Christ reveals to us our hope through His service to us. And we see that in, in such, a, such an intimate way in this text, in the same way that we see it just continue to unpack as, as the rest of the readings tonight demonstrated to us, that uh, in this very close moment with his, with his disciples, he showed them the service that he renders and how that is hope for them. So I want us to look at that together um, and see his service as revealing hope. We see his service of sovereign knowledge and decree. We see his service of example and of conferment. And we see his service of prayer and of restoration. So let's look together at that briefly tonight and see what the Lord would encourage us with from his service. First, we see his sovereign knowledge. It's clear, uh, although we're just picking up on the end of a text about what we most of us know already very well has gone on, that Jesus, having offered the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we'll take together in just a few moments, as they're eating that, as they, it's, it's almost as if they're, as they're finishing that up together, then he tosses out this comment that one of them is going to betray and, uh, and in that moment, then he reveals his, the depth of his knowledge, the richness of his awareness of exactly what's going on. Uh, this is not um, knowledge uh, without any, um, without any uh, sense of um, agreement or of willingness to go along with it. He's clear both in the fact that he knows what's coming and that he's ready to, to take what's coming. Uh, there's this sovereign knowledge that gives us a sense of service. He will be betrayed, and he is willing to submit himself to that betrayal for a purpose, right? Uh, Mark Driscoll, um, who uh, is uh, a pastor up in Seattle, uh, wrote in this book, Vintage Church, uh, this, and there, there, this is reflected there on your page if you'd like to follow along as I read. He said, it was not until the age of 19 while reading Romans in my college dorm room that God the Holy Spirit regenerated me, giving me faith to trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. This happened apart from any church. Both the teachings of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate me through the power of the gospel made me a member of the invisible church despite the fact that I had already lived my life as a member of the visible church. My point is that you can be baptized in the church, raised in the church, confirmed in the church, serve in the church, marry in the church, die in the church, and have your funeral in the church and still wake up in hell if you're merely in the church and not in Christ. The word that Driscoll is pointing us to is that there is this sense of knowledge. Who does God know? Who knows God? Who has trusted in, not in just what we, uh, what we know about God, but in the work of God? Uh, who has 
um, who has understood his sovereign willingness to submit himself to that service for us and has embraced that as our hope and not some other, some other thing. He has this sovereign knowledge. And he further goes on to say that there's this sovereign decree. He says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Did you pick up on that? This is the guy who they've been understanding more and more to be God. And now he's saying, this has been determined. This has been ordained that it would happen this way. Now, we can't overlook the power of that phrase. Uh, it's substantial that God would say, this must be the way that it will happen. That I will go in service. That I will go even by my own decree to be betrayed and to be killed and to take up what those that I go to die for cannot take up for themselves. Y'all, when we forget where our hope is, Jesus reveals it to us in his sovereignty. Do you believe in that kind of sovereignty, that sovereign will and decree, the sovereign knowledge that, that would know what is coming for you, that would know the betrayal that you have faced or will face, that would know the suffering that will attend you in days to come or that has in recent days. Do you know that sovereign God? Do you hope in that sovereign God? He is the God that uh, they were sitting at table with, and yet they somehow didn't seem to see it. Instead, in verse 23, they're focused on who's it going to be? They're bickering again, right? The, The disputes, the tradition of fighting among each other. They're missing everything about his sovereignty in this moment. But he renders them that service. And he renders them the service of example and confirm it as we see moving on into the next part of the passage. First, he takes on this, uh, this uh, worldliness that they, um, that they want to argue about. Uh, this seems to be kind of their central argument, right? Because we find four or five other times in the Gospels where this same fight came up um, or where somebody around them was interested in that, right? Remember uh, James and John's mother coming to Jesus and asking for that prominent place? Uh, remember uh, the point where they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest while they were walking along, and he asks them what they were talking about, and they say nothing because they know that he would not approve. This is a common thread. This was, you know, some people like to talk politics. Some people like to talk sports. Apparently the disciples like to talk who will be the greatest. Um, that was their that was their kind of banter, right? So they're back at it here at the supper. And Jesus just sort of turns that on its head. And he shows them the worldliness of that desire. A friend of mine, a man named Rat, uh, Rat, Matt Redmond. You can see how I got rat from that, right? Matt Redmond, he's not a rat. Um, he recently reflected on, uh, on a moment that he had when he was serving as a pastor. He's not serving as a pastor any longer, but he was. And, uh, and he was talking about the same death to worldliness that Jesus challenges them with here. He says, as I walked to my car, the strangest thing happened. I looked at my car and noticed the really nice car sitting beside it. Mine had a whopping 205,000 miles and feels like it has earned the right to not always go when told to. And as, uh, and as the thought occurred to me, because I'm a pastor who longs to follow Jesus, I will most likely never have a car like that. It felt like death. Or 
at least like dying. He says it was death to the promises of the American dream. It was death to the pride of possessions. It was death to clenching tightly to all my sinful self holds dear. I know, I know this is a good thing. The Apostle John describes it like he does because this is what is what it is. It is death. And death is usually very painful. And sometimes we need to come in more, more close encounter with that kind of death, don't we? Where we're hoping in our worldliness. We're hoping in the accomplishments of what's going on around us or what we're involved in. We're hoping for the prominence that will come from that sort of recognition. Jesus challenges us there. As the Schlatter quote said earlier that, that we reflected on at the beginning, uh, we are challenged because the faith that we believe in gives us everything we need. We don't need the worldly hopes because we have these heavenly hopes. And that's what he goes on to tell them about next in this passage. He says, not so with you. Isn't that comforting? That these disciples who would be bickering, that he would, he would say, not that it, it one day won't be so for you, but that to these uh, worldly-minded children of his, because they were his children, he says, not so now with you. This is not who you are. In contrast to the self-promoting and self-righteous understanding of the greatness that their dispute exposed, he offered them a new understanding of true and righteous greatness, a life of service, which we often think about when we think about very menial jobs, right? But it doesn't take um, what, it, what is by our culture described as a menial job to live service, to embrace that kind of service. It doesn't require that of us. Although we can learn a lot from that. I remember a restaurant that I worked for, um, and uh, I, I'd worked there long enough that I actually saw a number of managers come through in training. And everyone who worked at that restaurant, even the managers in training, spent a night on the dish line. Everyone spent a night on the dish line because they had to learn even the lowest tasks among the work that they were to do. If they were going to rise into the prominence and power of their management position, they had to spend a night on the dish line. They had to understand service. Jesus is showing them not a beginning of the place of service, but as the identity of the place of service. Not just one night on the dish line, that we would be content and happy and even long to spend every night in that position. Leon Morris said this about this passage. He said, Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to do great things in the church, they must first prove themselves in the lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in the lowly place is itself true greatness. Isn't that wonderful? It's not that we do the low things that we might be lifted up to the high places. We do the low things because they are the high places in God's eyes, in Christ's estimation. He says, once a man has experienced the mercy of God in his life, he will henceforth aspire only to serve. The proud throne of the judge no longer hires him or lures him. He wants to be down below with the lowly and the needy because that is where God found him. And then he confers these kingdom blessings. Uh, the blessing not just of uh, of uh, service of example, but a, a service of conferring these same things onto them. He says, just as I have served you, 
my example. So now you serve others, right? In fact, that's the reason why we're gathered tonight, really. Monday, Thursday is a night of great weight in so many ways, right? That was the night of the, of the prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, it was the, uh, the amazing account of their celebration of the Passover together, the time that Jesus washed their feet. But the word Monday means command. It's a, an old Latin term for command. Because this was also the night that he said, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And how is it that he had loved them? He had loved them in service, in washing their feet, in taking up the lowest tasks, in doing what nobody else in, in that culture would have, would have really even been willing to allow him to do had he not been who he was. He served them in that way. The fruit of his service to them and to us is that we're granted a kingdom. He says that in our text, that we're granted a kingdom that we might eat and drink at table with him. The, the blessing, the privilege of coming forward to eat this meal or of receiving it where we sit, the privilege of gathering for this meal's purpose and of taking the sacrament is one where, we are, where we're given a kingdom of service to serve one another, to deny ourselves, to put the other higher than our own. He gives us that, not just an example, but in conferring that to us. And then finally, he gives the service of prayer and restoration. Uh, first, we see the service of prayer uh, that he renders. <laughs> Can you picture poor Simon? All his days with Jesus, he's been called Peter, right? Which uh, folks in my congregation know um, means rock. Uh, and he was Simon, son of John, uh, which means that in our day, we would have called him Rocky Johnson, right? Um, and uh, poor Rocky, kind of getting used to the name, thinking, you know, I can swagger a little bit with that kind of a nickname, right? And then here, here, um, here Jesus comes to him and says, uh, Simon, hey, Simon, come here. There's this sort of uh, humbling, uh, unnaming of him again. There's that moment, right, when, um, when your friends call you, not by what they usually call you as a nickname, but by your whole name, right? You remember your mom calling you by your full name when you, were, when you knew that there was trouble coming, right? Um, Marcy almost never calls me Ed. It's almost always baby. And so when she calls out Ed, I know that there's something wrong, right? <laughs> um, so it is probably for Simon. Poor guy. And he says, he hears the worst thing he could possibly hear, right? Satan has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat. If you've never seen wheat being sifted, it's a pretty rough experience. They, they take these heads of wheat and they put them in these big baskets, and as I understand it anyway, and they, and they would sling them up in the air and then they would fall heavily down into the basket again and the wind would carry away the chaff and, the, and the, what was left was just the wheat grains, right? That was the sifting of wheat. So you're going to get thrown around and slung by Satan, Simon. And, you know, you can almost picture Simon saying, did you say no, please? Did you say no? And he says, I've prayed for you. I prayed for you, Simon. And here's the hope of that prayer. It's one of restoration. 
I prayed for you. And when you return, when you return, you hear that confidence that Jesus has? You will be sifted by, by Satan like wheat. But I've prayed for you. Uh, Thomas Watson said, when a Christian is weak and can hardly pray for himself, Jesus Christ is praying for him. What a comfort is this. When Satan is tempting, Christ is praying. Is that me? Is that trouble? Am I about to get electrocuted? (laughs) Jesus is praying. He's praying for Simon. He's praying for us. You know, the scriptures tell us that's, that's what he spends his days now doing, waiting for his return here and interceding on our behalf before the Father. He's praying for you. Are you feeling sifted? Has this been a trying season for you? Do you feel like God is abandoning you? He's praying for you. He is with you in his prayers. He has not left you to Satan's designs. He is praying for you. And just as he promised restoration to Peter, we who are his children can know the confidence of that when. Not if you return, Simon. When you return. So much so that he was able to send them out into the night. Let's go. It's time to get our, get our game on. It's time to do what we came to do tonight. When you turn back, strengthen the brothers. When you turn back, remember what he tells them later? Feed my lambs. When you turn back, tend my sheep. And he does, doesn't he? Peter goes on into uh, an incredible ministry. Uh, Not one of if you turn back, when you turn back. Beloved, when you stray because you doubt God's sovereignty, when you turn back, when you find your eyes taken off the core truths of the faith, distraction, disputing with others, when you turn back. When you find that your life is full of trials and it feels like you are being sifted like wheat, when you turn back, know our Lord's restoring grace, His mercy to us. He does not leave you abandoned. He has not left you without hope. He will not allow your struggles to prevail. His grace will prevail. He is indeed a solid rock, a foundation. He is the fountain of of our faith. And He is what we are built upon. That is our hope. We have that hope in His service to us. Let's pray that we would know and rest in that hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for the confidence of Your sustaining grace that You have not left us to ourselves that you have not left us to sin and misery, that you have not left us to our trials or our doubts or our fears, but you have promised that even when we stray, even when we struggle, when we turn back, your grace is yet sufficient for us. Lord, keep our hearts from disputes. Keep us from seeking after worldly affirming faith and and, uh, attention from others. Lord, turn us to you. 
that we might see the hope that your gospel holds for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.